Welcome to Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora. I'm Ariana Miller, a Filipino American from a small town on the southern border in Texas. I'm Sherilyn Lee, a new American with Chinese Mauritian roots. Together, we wanted to create a safe space where everyone feels welcome to learn more about the AAPI community. We hope that through the personal stories we'll hear, we'll all get a glimpse of the humanity behind the stereotypes, how we have so much in common in some ways and so little in other ways. Before we get into our conversation with Nathan, let's take a moment to define a few terms that come up throughout the interview. Capitalism is an economic system based on the private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. The Aquino administration began following the triumph of the People Power Revolution movement, which overthrew the dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. As a revolutionary president, Corazon Aquino repealed and abolished repressive laws under her predecessor and restored civil liberties. Hella cells. The first cells that could be easily shared and multiplied in a lab setting obtained during Henrietta Lacks' cancer treatment by Johns Hopkins researcher Dr. George Gay in 1951. Moral majority. A political action group formed in the 1970s to further a conservative and religious agenda, including anti-LGBTQ plus laws, anti-choice, anti-equal rights amendment, and promoting the conversion to Christianity. Abrahamic religions, such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are religions derived from the teachings of the prophet Abraham. Lobbying. The act of lawfully attempting to influence the actions, policies, or decisions of government officials, most often legislators or members of regulatory agencies. Nathan Rogers is a Filipino-American, forever bound to the hyphen. He is an incoming startup manager and a recent MBA graduate from the Jones Graduate School of Business at Rice University. While at Rice, he was a fellowship of the Consortium for Graduate Study in Business, the leading diversity, equity, and inclusion fellowship dedicated to increasing representation at top MBA programs in the U.S. He lives in Houston with his wife, Lauren, and daughter, Corazon. In his spare time, he shares his writing about work, faith, culture, and their intersections on Medium. Thanks so much for hanging with us, Nate. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me on the podcast. Nate and I went to college together. We went to Baylor. Yeah, so we're old college buds. It's been fun to reconnect over this and also see that you're doing music now. Thanks. It's great to see you, a Filipino-American in music because I don't really see that a lot. Thanks. Yeah, and it's great to see you too doing your writing, your MBA, all of that stuff. I really enjoyed some of the stuff you wrote about your experiences as a Filipino because that's not something that we had ever talked about with each other when we were in school together. And that's been a similar experience with some of my other Filipino-American friends that I either went to school with or had something in common with is we'd never really talked about our experiences being Filipino-American. Yeah, I think part of it is I don't think I even had the language back then. It yeah. took 10 years between then and now to really revisit that narrative and that understanding. I have more vocabulary now. I've had to process a lot of that latent anguish and anger. Tell us a little bit about your background, just to give our listeners some context. Yeah, I'd be happy to. My personal narrative between myself and my ethnic and cultural identity is that I have been living as a Filipino-American, forever bound to the hyphen, and then mostly functioning as an anthropologist on white people. I guess I can unpack that a little bit. So my mother is full-blooded Filipina, and then my father is actually a white American from Indiana. They met while my dad was in service of the military. He was a U.S. navalman. They met on base there and came back to the States when the Philippines and the Aquino administration started shutting down U.S. naval bases in the late 80s and early 90s. And so came to the stateside shortly after I was born, really. 
I'd spent most of my life in the U.S. And so most of my experience growing up have been in predominantly monocultural and ethnically white environments. My most formative years after my dad retired from the military was growing up in a small town in Tennessee where mostly everyone was white. There are very few people of color. Basically, my mother and I is the only Filipinos in town. And because it was such a formative time, that experience really did leave an impression in terms of how I understand the world and the way that I perceive my own brownness. Um, and it's been a lifelong journey to kind of unravel that and mm -hmm. find words to articulate. And I think I still am continuously trying to find better words. And the more that I tell the story, the more truthful it gets, but also the more complex it gets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods. Did you feel like you were discriminated against or that you were different or were you embraced and accepted by the people around you? I grew up in multiple areas across the country and I have found that in terms of feeling like I belong, I do feel like I have had a really tight sense of belonging and community in my hometown. Because it was a small town and most people more or less are committed there for life. Mm -hmm. And so those six years that I spent from middle school through high school were really great in terms of finding community and just growing up together with people that I'd gone to school with from seventh grade all the way through high school in a whole room of Caucasian American white kids. And there's one brown kid and that's me. It's hard not to acknowledge that. But at the same time, I was able to open some people's horizons on things. Mm -hmm. I had a little bit of a different perspective. But then also at the same time, I also feel like I have a unique vantage point into what it means to be a person that's living in rural America and in the South. So I have understandings of why most people vilify rural America, but at the same time, I get where the pain points are. I'm very fortunate in the sense that I don't think I experienced any really overt racism or discrimination as yeah. a kid, but there are in a sense microaggression as misunderstandings or weird takeaways or perceptions of what it meant to be Asian. And there are some kids being stupid because they're kids or whatever, but ultimately I felt at home, but also there's always that sense of otherness but there was still a way for me to connect, even though I had felt a little bit of that distance or outsider status. So there's, there's a little bit of a tension there that I am still trying to articulate. Yeah. Did you feel American? That's a very interesting question. A tough question to unpack because there's a lot of assumptions going into that question. What does it mean to be American? I think we are taught a lot of this narrative in American history classes growing up that America is a melting pot, a city on the hill, all these exemplary language. And I think the reality is somewhat different. I think I am a consequence of the culture around me. We're all imbued with cultural values from wherever we are in our context. So I have grown up in Southern American worldview where, yes, America is the land of the free and home of the brave. And the values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are very much ideals. You live your life and the freedom to do that and self-determine your own fate and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I was born on a naval base. I technically is U.S. soil. So by definition and technicality, I am an American citizen and I'm born of American citizen. I think about this. If I were ever to run for president, would I have a birther controversy? I probably would because <laughs> not that I would ever want to become president. Politics is not for me. But I do think in a sense, culturally, I have been very much influenced by American influence. Mm -hmm. Just growing up here, my sense of security and confidence about, am I really American? Do people consider me American? I feel that it waxes and wanes depending on my feelings sometimes. 
depending on what's in the new cycle, I guess. So that's always a question that's always up in the air. I probably shouldn't have any insecurity about that, but that is something that my feelings about that change quite often. You mentioned that you grew up very patriotic, very proud of the U.S. What were you most proud of? Being the son of a military veteran, I was very interested in American history and wanting to learn more about this country that I found myself in from both my parents. My mother was very much decrying the political corruption in the Philippines, and then my dad was a proud navalman. Growing up, I was proud of this idea that in America, you can become whoever you want. That whole virtue and that value proposition of self-determination was so incredibly romantic to me. There's such a legacy of people coming to America out of the economic poverty or situations of war abroad or came in as a refugee or an immigrant. And then all of a sudden they worked hard and they got into their dream job or created a legacy or career or name for themselves. That's the language that's portrayed to not just immigrant kids, but that's the message that the U.S. broadcasts all over the world in terms of the entertainment stories that come out of Hollywood or anything like that. So that's very much influential on me. And I think that's something I still am in pursuit of. What did you learn over time that went against that narrative? And how did that impact you? Yeah, I think of this as a narrow chipping away a facade that ended up crumpling over time. And there's a huge chunk of it that just broke one time. I really started to scrutinize the American narrative. When I was in the junior in high school, I took advanced placement in U.S. history. I was just interested in learning more about the country, but also I wanted AP credit because I wanted to achieve. I remember we were in this unit about Spanish-American War, World War I. My teacher had played this documentary about the early 1900s, and that was around the presidencies of Taft. And they cover a little bit about the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. It's a little bit of history lesson here. In the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, the Philippines at that time had been under Spanish colonial rule for a couple hundred years, fought for independence. They got it from the Spanish. And then ultimately, because some sort of technicality that Spain owned the Philippines, which, yeah, you can't own a country. They ended up as part of the agreement between the Spanish and the Americans. The Spanish ended up giving the Philippines over to the U.S., on the Filipino side, you have Spanish oppression and colonialization and then American protectorate rule. It was either Taft or one of the other presidents at the time about how it was the American duty to educate our little brown brothers. And I remember the whole class was turning their heads around and looking at me. And that was one moment where I was like, that's not a good look yeah. for America, at least for me. During the whole arc of that course, understanding the legal precedent of what this defines mm -hmm. American citizenship from the outset, I think if you want some more additional context on that, there's a great podcast called Seeing White. That was an undoing of this romantic narrative for me. At that point, I had been wanting to go to college and make something of myself and pursue the American dream that my parents have been wanting for me and been pushing me towards for such a long time as a kid. And then all of a sudden, really understanding the country that I am now living in. It was the beginning of the end in terms of this unabashed and untested loyalty. So I think the word patriot is a little bit of a weird term for me to listen to now. I do love this country. I am a citizen and I have and I want to be a good citizen, but at the same time, I don't have this blind loyalty to mm -hmm. the state yeah. as much as I thought I did. That's a continuous journey that I'm still walking out. 
Yeah,、um, a lot of people, us included, are of two minds about what it means to be patriotic. Because yes, this is a great country, and there's a lot of good things about it. The marketed message of America is very romantic, and you can't not agree with it. Like freedom, yeah. what? Yeah, everybody wants freedom,、yeah. but it breaks down in the implementation. Yeah, yeah. The ideal might be something we all aspire to, but <laughs> how、mm-hmm. we get there, there's a lot of gray area. So, have you been able to discuss these with the white people who are around you? The time, what was their reaction? That time that I'd been taking that class was actually in the middle of the 2008 election with Barack Obama and John <laughs> McCain, and that was a really politically loaded time. I knew that if I were to have those conversations with people outside of that classroom, I would have a little pushback. And so I had my personal internal struggle, like, what is going on with this country right now? Like, one black man decides to run for president, all of a sudden everyone loses their mind. But I was still really reluctant to actually voice my true opinions on things, and so I really didn't say much. Yeah, understandable. And I had classmates who were more outspoken and also politically left of center, which is surprising、mm-hmm. for rural high school. But I remember they were more outspoken about the injustices going on or the craziness of it all. Yeah. And I wish that I had joined in and saying, "Yeah, this is madness, and we shouldn't be so up in arms about this." But also, this is a beautiful moment. But some people weren't so enthused about it. So there's a lot of this internal conflict. It wasn't until well into my twenties that I have actually started to talk about. Here's the Impact of colonialism, white supremacy, and my own internalized sense of fractured self that I've had being biracial as well. Those are conversations I still very much hold to my chest. And if I am talking to a white person about my experience or race, it usually means that I trust that person a lot. Because it's not something that I am very easily willing to parse out and provide my perspective. Because I'm usually expecting some form of racial gaslighting. It's like, no, that's not actually how it is. You're wrong. Your reading of history is wrong. That's actually not your experience.、Yeah. What do you think that conservatives hear when they hear the term white privilege? Because I think a lot of the misunderstanding is that when we say something. They're hearing a whole different thing. Yeah, I feel like there's a thousand reactions coming in and rising all at once. I think what I see in conservative circles a lot is that the idea of white privilege means that things are just automatically easier, or problems just didn't exist if you're white. And that's where you have to start talking about the definition of white privilege. It doesn't mean that there's a total and complete absence of struggle, but it does mean that because of your ethnic status when you were born, there are some ways that the existing political, legal, structural system around you maybe have had a little bit more of an advantage. I think that's the first fight or flight reaction that comes up. Whoa, no, I worked hard my whole life. I wasn't privileged. That's so frustrating because that's not what it actually means. Yeah, for anybody who actually does not know, <laughs> white privilege refers to the fact that there are things that you can take for granted in this country if you are white. For example, that the police is there to protect you, and that you can go out、right. for a run and not be stopped by the police and、yeah. ask what you're doing there because you look suspicious. Be arrested when you commit a crime instead of being shot down. There's just so many things.、Mm-hmm. The ideal of America, this place for people to be free and do what they want and work hard and succeed, that is true for white people. But it's not necessarily true if you're a person of color, especially if you're black or indigenous. That is what we refer to when we talk about white privilege. We're not saying that you have everything easy. We're just saying、right. that there are additional struggles laid on top of people of color that white people. Don't necessarily have to deal with. I can understand that it's hard for people who are maybe from a rural place where the economy is not doing very well and they're struggling to get a job or whatever. And it's easy for them to say, "Well, where the heck's my privilege?" 
privilege doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means mm -hmm. that you have certain advantages. It's easier for you to get loans. It's easier for you to buy a house in a nice zip code. It's easier for you to get interviews, to get hired, to get promoted. And not because you did anything to promote racism. It's just a fact of life in America. It wasn't your mm -hmm. fault. We're not blaming you for it. We just ask that you acknowledge that these things do exist. Yeah, it's not saying you didn't work hard, but you only had to work hard. There were no systemic barriers or there were fewer systemic barriers. Whereas we work hard too, but we have to navigate all of this systemic bias. We have to navigate assumptions about who we are. And that does come with a threat to your personal safety when it comes to law enforcement and things like that. So it's not the absence of hard work. It's just that you only had to work hard. Yeah. And the thing yeah. too is that it permeates every industry you can think of, even medicine. Yeah. HeLa cells were taken from a Black woman. Those cells have helped develop treatments for cancer all over the world. They're still using her cells. They never got her permission. They never paid her family. Some of the standards that are used to care for people in medicine, they had different thresholds for what is considered abnormal. Basically, if you're Black, you have to be way more sick for them to consider you sick. There's actually documented studies that have shown that these are in fact not true. People are still using those. When we are talking about white privilege, we're not talking about you not deserving your success. We're just talking about other people also deserving such success, but not getting it because of the color of their skin. You mentioned that you are a religious man. What is your religion and what values has that religion instilled in you? My mother's Catholic and my family on my dad's side was predominantly Baptist. And mostly my religious influence has fallen on the umbrella of Christianity in multiple denominations. For those of you who may not be familiar with Christianity, there's two main branches. Catholicism and Protestantism. The original church sprung out of Catholicism and then in the 1500s because of Martin Luther was a major split. And now under the Protestant umbrella, there's a whole bevy of denominations. Mm -hmm. My most influential religious Christian tradition had been the Baptist tradition, which still affirms the major tenets of Christianity that most people would assume as part of Orthodox Christianity. The main differences are in terms of the literal interpretation of the Bible, the status of church government, which means a lot of churches that are Baptist tend to be a lot more independent as opposed to the Catholic Church where there's a whole church structure of like priests, archbishops, the Pope, and then also the Baptist theology of the priesthood of the believer. The believer has more personal authority in their own faith, not necessarily relying on higher level church figures to tell them what to believe. Also baptism, which is you profess your faith and then you're baptized by full immersion and fashion of Jesus when he was baptized by his cousin John in the gospels. Those are some particular influences on my faith coming into my personal story. And I came into the Christian world as my extended family invited me to their church on Sunday when I moved to Tennessee. And that's when it started. Actually, my parents are not much churchgoers. My mom said that she was still raised Catholic, but they didn't really go to church all that much. My dad said he was more of a backslidden Baptist. I think he's more agnostic than anything else. In terms of the values that have instilled in me was a sense of community and belonging. And identity is not necessarily your racial identity, but your personhood, soul identity as a Christian and what you believe. And so that crosses denominational, cultural national ethnic borders. The romantic vision of this is that under the banner of Christ, we're all united. And I still hold to that idea. I think that's what the church should be. There's room for ideological and theological diversity. So community is a huge thing. And then also the sense of giving back and being a good steward in the sense that everything that you have is not yours alone. 
it's to be given out to the people around you in terms of your own personal strengths in terms of like oh you're good at encouraging people or you're good at numbers so you should be good at serving other people helping them understand numbers or anything like that being a community and helping each other out yeah also a vision and an understanding of the world around you there's hebrew proverb that the truth was naked but no one accepted truth as it was so they clothed truth and story i think that's pretty powerful as a visual it's hard to understand the world around us but having a story and a lens to understand the world that is probably the thing that keeps me to christianity even though i have very complicated relationship with the church right now i think a lot of people do but yeah this vantage point is the thing that makes the most sense even though it nothing makes sense and also provides the most hope in a world that feels so hopeless. You grew up in a relatively conservative environment, and mm. it seems that for some people, conservatism is closely linked to how religious you are. And that seems to be true in the US. It was not true where I grew up. But do you feel that is actually true? That's a good question. Rural communities tend to be more monocultural. Everyone's a little bit the same, but actually I did see a little bit of political diversity growing up. I had some family members who were more left of center. People that I went to school with, they were more left of center. But in terms of numbers and percentages, most people leaned conservative. To unpack this question also has to grapple with the reality that in the U.S., religious piety and political affiliation is a uniquely American thing. I think it's hard. Yeah. I talk to people who are from New Zealand, they're like, oh yeah, your politics and your religion, they're not necessarily huge influences on each other. You have some sort of political leaning and then you also have your faith and mm -hmm. those aren't necessarily related. And this is helpful for me to understand too, but specifically in the Southern Baptist world, there was a movement around the 1970s to have a moral majority. So you hear that language a lot. Your religious affiliation also impacts your political stances, especially on morality issues. That was the biggest cultural influence on me and my context growing up. And yeah, I think it is in a sense overwhelming because you are Christian, you also believe in these particular moral stances. And so therefore you must also be conservative. That was a really hard association for me to break because I think in some ways, depending on how you read the Christian Bible and your political, philosophical, and moral stances get a lot more complex. It's hard to be in an environment where there's very much a camp and you can't delineate yourself or have any sort of disagreement or questioning of that. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about political ideology being entwined with your faith, that's something that I struggled with when I was at Baylor, actually, because there were lots of issues where the church had a hard stance. I think the biggest one I had was abortion because I've always been pro-choice. I was never really vocal about it in high school and college because I was raised Catholic. It depends on the church that you go to, because I've been to some Catholic churches that were really conservative politically. And I've been to Catholic churches where they were telling people, go get your vaccine, talking mm -hmm. about supporting political candidates who would support women, that sort of thing. So I've seen right. different ends of the spectrum. And I think that your relationship with the church does depend on the specific church and the people in it. I don't know that I consider myself religious anymore. I do believe mm -hmm. in the idea of God. I believe in the concept of a deity, but I can believe in God, but disagree with the church, which I do. There are a lot of issues that I personally have with the church. But that mm -hmm. was such a big struggle for me because the church said abortion was murder. I would be like, so am I a bad person if I don't think that's the case? It caused me to question whether I was a moral person or not. 
you know, when I would meet people in church who were more compassionate, I would be like, okay, I feel like I can belong here. Yeah, I resonate with that a little bit. I remember that there are pro-life groups on yeah. Baylor's campus, but I yeah. find that pro-life language is unilateral, but it's only pro-life until like, making a woman deliver the baby. And then after that, right. you don't care. And then there's a sense in which, you know, if you're pro-life, fundamentally, that means you believe in the value of life at all stages. And so if you're pro-life, you should also be someone who should care for the mothers that give birth, or you should care about the people that have health issues and should yeah. care for them while they're alive. And I find that sort of language and policy creation lacking. It's a tough thing to bring up in this cultural context right now, especially when there's so much conversation going around about abortion and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, as well as gun control. I don't think that the conversation is really all that reasonable and it's hard to enter right. into that without getting so frustrated. Yeah, definitely. It's been strange for me to observe just how religion is somehow so intertwined with politics here, because mm -hmm. where I grew up, I would say the majority were Hindus and then Catholic would probably be the second majority then Muslims and all the Chinese people were both Catholic and Buddhist. Don't ask me how that works, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that never influenced politics like it does here. The churches would never talk about politics as far as mm -hmm. the churches that I've gone to as a kid. It's so strange to me that so many people think that if you're Christian, then you have to be conservative because I know for a fact that many people who are more liberal are Christian. And I think it also depends on where you are in the US too. Obviously, if you're in Tennessee and Texas, a lot of people there are conservative. But if you're in a very diverse place like California, maybe not as many. So I find it very strange that this is such a known thing that everybody assumes when it doesn't seem like it's very true. <laughs> it gets so frustrating when I hear people say we're a Christian nation because we're not. But I think one of the biggest issues I have with people who entwine their political ideology with their religion is it's almost the sense of superiority. We're Christian. Our laws are going to be based around Christianity. And it's so funny, too, when Christians say they're against Islam, because I'm like, you guys know that they're Abrahamic religions as well. It's the same God, but I, I don't know where this idea that we're a Christian nation came from. Yeah, I have objections to that statement too, because what about widows and orphans, bro? How many kids are in foster care? The state that I used to live in before business school was one of the top states for female incarceration. A lot of those households also were single mother households, which meant kids just going into foster care because some policies just predominantly pushed a lot of women into jail. Also, funding isn't really much given to foster care or health care or education. And those are all things that are yeah. helpful and important for taking care of people. Taking care of people is very much a Christian thing. I think that's very much in line with people who are of faith. Yeah. And that was one of the key things that you said the religion instilled in you, taking care of your community and the political yeah. side says, nope, we're not going to do that. Yeah, it's a lot of mental gymnastics. I'm curious how people reconcile those two. Yeah, I've also been very puzzled by how capitalism is somehow made to be part of Christianity. Here we go. Here we go. Here's the C word. Get the business guy to talk about capitalism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's interesting being an MBA student in this context. There's actually an article in The Atlantic. It's actually a guy who taught business school at Columbia. And he was talking about over the years, students have come in actually questioning capitalism, mm -hmm. which is bizarre in the MBA world where it's supposed to be this proponent for free market. 
In terms of economic systems, capitalism does work. It works and it creates wealth for people. But also because of the way that free markets work, it also creates winners and losers. Economic winners and losers also tend to fall along color lines as well. The impact of slavery has prevented Black people to generate wealth in America. The idea of generating Black wealth over time in America, that didn't happen until post-1800s. And so the conversation around capitalism is really interesting because, yes, as a system, it functions. But also, what is the implications of a free market that dictates winners and losers, and when most of the losers could be disproportionately people of color? That's a really tough question to answer, but it's also an important one because we can even move forward without having to actually reckon with the reality of this is a consequence of historical movements and legal structures that have basically made markets function this way. Yeah, and again, we're not saying that if you're white today, you are responsible for all the things that have happened in the past. We're not blaming you for the system that already exists. Mm -hmm. We're just hoping that you can recognize and that you can help change things for the better. Yeah, acknowledging the realities of the systems. I really like what you said, though, about capitalism and the implications of who are the people that suffer under the system. Because capitalism, patriarchy and white supremacy, they're all interconnected. A lot of people tend to treat them as separate issues, but I think that they're all tied together. These are tough conversations to enter into because the relationship between spirituality, religion, and political identity, you have to work to disentangle each strand and then put things mm -hmm. back together. It's like taking apart an engine and having to rebuild it. Yeah. In our current context of the United States in 2022, we are functioning as if we have this legal system that is a representative of democracy, but who is it really representing? And then also who are the cultural inputs of that when the U.S. is founded? So it's like it's a big student of history, politics, sociology, philosophy. It's a lot of work. But if I'm trying to understand my own racial identity, I was like, disentangle all this stuff. So yeah, I'm brown, but that's not a unilateral thing. Yeah. Just as much as being white is also not a unilateral thing. I keep citing the Seeing White podcast as a really good resource on it because that actually busted the bubble that white was a cultural and ethnic identity. It's yeah. super arbitrary. I'd rather you say like German-American than saying white. <laughs> yeah. The whole concept of whiteness, it deals in purity. So I guess for you being biracial, a lot of biracial people, if they're not white passing, they identify more with their community of color rather than their white community. And yeah. They're still othered by white people, even if they're right. half white, if they're half mm -hmm. something else. But then also it erases any kind of cultural identity for people who are German or Scottish or whatever. It just erases the nuance of actual European cultures. And then it deals in purity. It's this weird absolute sort of thing. Yeah, it's so wild. Oh, if you're from Southern Europe, for a long time, you weren't considered white. If you're Italian, yeah. you're Italian, but you weren't white. What world is that? that I don't understand. <laughs> yep, definitely. My husband experienced that growing up Italian in a Polish neighborhood, and they definitely stood out being the only family with black hair. <laughs> right. He never considered himself white until he had to fill one of those census forms, and there was no Italian there. So it was like, oh, I guess I'm white. <laughs> right. Oh, man. <laughs> Those forms, oh my gosh. Don't tell me I'm biracial. I had classmates when I was younger. <laughs> Fill out the white bubble because it looks hard. I don't know how that works, right? <laughs> yeah. Dramatic. We all struggle with the census forms. I'm just not feeling those boxes, and none of us do. Even if there's Filipino on the census form, Filipino is not even our word. That was given to us by the Spanish. Truly, we're hundreds of ethnicities across those islands. So even that is too broad of a word. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And there's not enough space to have a bubble for every single ethnic group. So it's like out of convenience, but oh, okay, uh, I guess I am Asian. Sure. Whatever. <laughs>
even though in Crazy Rich Asians, I was like, where are my people? There's Nico Santos. Yeah, they should have called it Fancy Asians. <laughs> I would love to be a Crazy Rich Asian. And I'm more like rebuilding my credit Asian. But it's also a rom-com. It's not supposed to be like anything. It's significant since it was an all-Asian cast, pan-Asian cast. But I wish there was some Filipinos in there too. More. They're in Singapore. Philippines is right there. I did love the film, though. I think having the representation, the full Asian cast, that was a big deal. And I walked away yeah. from the theater feeling like, oh my God, there's a rice cooker in this film. Do you see that? But also looking back, I remember I was reading some articles about the nuance within the Asian community. And then I noticed the brown Asians were Nico Santos, who was the token one, and then the guards or the people who were oh. helping out around the house. And I was like, oh, the colorism. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's like yep. it's a step is there room for more representation even beyond that 100 percent yeah yeah and it's interesting <laughs> as an east asian person i watched the film and i did not catch all of that until i talked to you about it there's people like me on screen oh my god yeah <laughs> which goes to show you that our experience as Asian Americans is so varied. And even mm -hmm. though we're all Asians, we don't really know what the other Asian experiences are like mm -hmm. until we go out and have those conversations. We yeah. all have room to grow. Yeah. I think it's funny. I sort of imagine someone objecting to those conversations. You have crazy rich Asians. Isn't that good enough? <laughs> okay, y'all have The Bachelor. You have The Bachelorette. <laughs> you have The Office. There's a whole range of Filipino or Asian American stories to tell. Yeah. Like to see like a Filipino American cowboy in Texas story. Yeah, why not? I think that's probably one of the things I'm hoping to see in the next couple of years is like to see yeah. a more robust range of narratives. Mm -hmm. Going back to this whole idea of self-determination, I'd grown up wanting to be a specific version of myself or someone who's in the world of business or in this arena of culture that doesn't see a lot of Asian American or Filipino American representation. But also, I have to be that representation in some ways, which is great. Yeah. I like breaking barriers and being a part of that. I don't want to be typecast like a techie or someone who's not management material. I want to be my own person, but because of the lack of representation in culture, I'm relegated to this typecast and I'm just I'm not here for it anymore. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I grew up in Texas. I have a Tito who dresses like a cowboy. The whole goal with representing different stories is so that we're seen as not a box. We're just seen as individuals. Exactly. And part of white privilege, I think, is white people don't think of themselves as the white community, the white ethnicity. They think of themselves as individuals. I'm just mm -hmm. who I am. And that's what we just want to be seen as individuals, not as the face of Filipino Americans because everybody's story is different. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about The Bachelors and all the shows, if you're a white <laughs> person, no matter what your personality is, you can probably find a TV or movie character that you strongly identify with. Whereas if you're one of us, you have Crazy Rich Asian, Joy Luck Club, The Farewell. That's a privilege. And people thinking that different Asian cultures are interchangeable, like Mulan. I'm not Chinese. There were lots of things about her culture that I did not identify with personally because we didn't do that. Or when people ask, do you know some random Asian person? Do you realize how many billions of Asian people there are? Yeah. You know what's funny, though? I've had people ask me if I know a certain Mauritian person, and the answer was yes. There's <laughs> <laughs> no people less. Small country. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I met somebody at a university event and she's, oh, I know this other Mauritian girl and her name is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's my cousin. <laughs> I swear that's we're not hilarious. the only two people on the island, but yeah, it happens <laughs> she's my cousin. So as many of us, you mentioned that you find yourself politically homeless because you don't quite agree with either party completely. Yeah. 
What does the ideal political party look like to you? My joke answer is that it should look like the Whig Party, which is an, a defunct political party in the 1800s. They have an owl as a mascot, which I thought was fun. But I don't know. Politically homeless is such a more apt title for me now. I mean, you know, there's some things about each party that I can see and get, but it's also the optics of everything else now and the polarization of everything is like so hard to get behind. At this point, honestly, I usually try and do as much research on candidates as possible. Yeah. And so usually I just back whatever candidate that I feel like if I can agree on 50% or more, then okay, I'll vote for that person. Or I feel like they have a good track record on voting for things that are of interest for the public or, or helpful. I've gotten into, okay, who gets money from who, who's voted on which bill. It's a lot more research and a lot more labor intensive, but I don't feel comfortable voting unless I actually do the research on the candidate. And so if I were to do this NBA 2K style and build a political person from scratch, yeah. I think if someone understands how markets work in terms of, okay, corporations aren't going to want to cooperate. It's like, yeah, it's mm -hmm. taking consideration who are the stakeholders here. There's also the whole public because what votes people in, but someone who doesn't bow to lobbying interests, which means you probably have to be independently wealthy to actually vote on principle rather than who gives you the most money. Yeah. That's such a tall order and it's so hard and I'm pessimistic about that actually happening, but I want any politician to be someone of character and someone who's very much interested in representing their district. And of course that also depends on what the culture of the district is, but yeah, if you know how systems and markets work and then you can learn how to make adjustments to that over time in favor of people flourishing and benefiting from good policies that protect them and protect their interests and their livelihoods, but it's hard to see that on either side. Yeah. Do you have any particular things that are red flags for you from either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party that you're like, I can't stand behind that? Because yeah. I think that's why most of us find ourselves in this middle ground where we're like, this is a no go for me. And that's why I don't want to identify with this particular party. Do you have those for both of the major parties? I think for me, if you have gotten significant funding from an organization like the NRA, it's hard to take them seriously if they're also very much pro-life or whatever. I don't know if gun policy is very pro-life in general. It's also, I have become a little more pro-choice leaning. There's also a landmine field of if you're pro-life, because those, oh, don't allow abortions unless it's in cases like rape or incest, but they're like, okay, just keep budging the line. Or do you want no abortions at all? Or like these specific cases for someone like me who has to grapple with the reality that sometimes abortion is the choice that needs to be made. That is a lot more nuanced than right. at the surface. I don't think I have the right to make that call because I'm not a woman and I've never birthed a child. Like my wife has birthed a child and she, I think she has more of a decision to make on that. I respect her autonomy. It's hard to take any sort of male politician seriously. Like they have thoughts yeah. on abortion or female, reproductive rights. You're not a woman. I'm not a yeah, woman either. That's not right for me to have a voice in that because that's not my experience. Right. It doesn't impact me as directly. Yeah. And so I think that ultimately there are lots of policies that can be adverse for people who are economically precarious. I'm thinking a lot of San Francisco. There's a huge housing crisis there, a huge homeless population, but there's still a lot of local policy about restricting construction or restricting the building of affordable housing. And that tends to fall on a lot of people who are on the progressive side because they want to protect their own little house or neighborhood. Really what it actually means if you do vote the rezoning of a district or something, that means there's a multi-level housing that maybe disrupt your single unit lot. Those are really granular implications. Mm -hmm. but it's hard to stand behind a, a candidate who says they're for this, but then actual voting and the way that they side things is very much against the interest. Um, yeah. If you want me to call it specifically, I think Kristen Cinema is interesting because she had came in as this radical, I'm here to reform everything. And then all of a sudden she's friends with Ted Cruz, which that's not <laughs> what your voting block voted you in for. Yeah. 
So I think probably the nature of the political game is more problematic for me than it is more than just policy too. Yeah. The political system encourages those elected people to not be consistent with what they promise and basically erodes their integrity over time. It almost feels like power is just not meant for people because mm. even good politicians, once they get a taste of that, they just use it for their self-interest. Are we meant to have power? That's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think even in a lot of Christian tradition, throughout the course of history, even the Bible itself, mm -hmm. the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, there's so much decrying of the dangers of power. And so it's interesting to have that as a background of be wary of gaining power, usurping power, lording power. It's such a dangerous thing, but it's also the reality at hand too. Okay, what do we do here? It all starts getting dangerous when we have significant influence and power over other people. Yeah. If we want to relay it back to the Filipino American or my own experience, the API experience, a lot of times power is not given the ability to self-determine and make decisions mm -hmm. on that simple level it may not even be given to people of color or yeah. the API yeah. community. It's important to have self-determination and the ability to make your own decisions. Yeah. Speaking of which, we talked about how religion and politics are inextricably intertwined in the yeah. What do you think religious leaders could do better to depolarize politics? Part of it has to do with who are the people that are at the table making decisions and determining cultural values. This is maybe more relevant for religious denominations that have more of a formal governance structure. For a season in Oklahoma City before business school, I was a member of a Presbyterian church and their church was more aligned with formal church structure. You have a whole independent church structure of a pastor, and then you have elders and deacons. But then they also reported to what was called the session of other churches. And then those people were also ruled on bylaws and technicality things. It was interesting being the Presbyterian church at that point. The Presbyterian Church of America's general session, which is all of the Presbyterian churches in America meeting together and voting on things. They had their first Asian American moderator who was able to kind of like facilitate the conversations. And then they also had like a black moderator for the next year. And that was the first time that actually happened throughout the entire history of the Presbyterian Church in America. I think those are some practical ways to be more inclusive and mm -hmm. add more robust things as part of what it means to be a Christian or be a part of your religious communities. If you are continuously editorializing and only reinforcing the outset of behavior from a specific narrow subset of people that all believe and think the same way, there's no progress. And so there's no robustness to it. You have to have people at the table that are of varying viewpoints, which means, yeah, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficult conversations to have. But it doesn't do anyone a service if you just keep something static over time, especially when we need to have more perspectives on the table. What about churches that are more like Baptists, where there isn't that structure? Is there anything that can be done? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to tell. So context here is, as we're talking, recently the Southern Baptist Convention released a report about allegations of sexual misconduct among pastors in the church. The main report of it is in Christianity Today. So I think they're literally living through that right now. It's like, how do we actually reform culture when there's this thing that has been a part of it that's been so adverse to it? The SBC is one of the largest evangelical and Protestant denominations in the U.S. And so this impacts millions of people and millions of churchgoers. And this is something that's going on in their church. They probably see a lot of people leave the church. And it's hard to tell how that's going to be restructured. And of course, the SBC in general is also an organization. So there's levels of leadership 
an influence that are going to be a part of it. But when your cultural default is you let people define things for themselves, you probably have to do a lot of change management on a smaller level where individual churches invite more people of varying perspectives to be a part of the conversations. But I may not have any right to speak into this as well because I don't attend an SBC church now. So I'm just yeah. commenting as an outsider of that congregation. It'll be interesting to see how that determines changes. A lot of times, especially with the news and politics, we're made to fear that people will not get the nuance and will not be able to yeah. have these complex discussions where we can agree on some things and disagree on things. That is so not true. I think most people are able to, but because we've been taught that you're either A or B, you're with them mm -hmm. or you're with us. It's this right. tribal thing that has been instilled in us. You have to pick a camp. What if both camps suck? <laughs> yeah, I am still, I find it so strange that in the US, because this isn't the case in other places, why do we still only have two major political parties? And even within the Democratic Party, how does it make sense that AOC and Joe Biden are in the same party? I never thought about it that way, actually. Oh my yes, gosh. You're they right, definitely though. do not belong in the same party. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> There's a joke, I think, whenever the 2016 election happened, Hillary Clinton was basically a Republican and then Donald Trump was Donald Trump. It's not easy to find nuance when there's only two options. Yeah. I've talked to someone about this too. They're like, what's our options? Should we have 35 different political parties? I don't know. But probably better than two. Or maybe we just do it off of candidates too. I don't know. Personal platforms. The consequence of only having two, the way the DNC works and the way the RNC works, we end up having to choose the lesser of two evils every single time. We, I settled for, personally, I settled for Joe Biden. He was not my first choice. Same with Hillary Clinton. She was not my first choice. It's just so strange that elections always end up being this person's less bad. The bar for us is, are they a decent human being? That's the bar. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. And again, if there was no lobbying money, then a lot yeah. of that would be a little better. The lobby money is, it's hard to compete with that. You can't compete mm -hmm. with yeah. it. Yeah. And that is why I will never be in politics. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy just being in the business world. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to see yeah. you too after a lot of years. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's great to be reunited and this is somewhat therapeutic just to get all this out. Before we let you go, we're going to have to do the rapid fire questions. Let's do it. <laughs> what language do you speak with your parents? English. What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Chicken adobo. You know what? It's a staple for a reason. Yeah, it's a staple for a reason. <laughs> what is a stereotype about your culture that is not true or does not apply to you? I'm not a nurse and i am not a doctor and yeah. i'm not always nice i'm not always a nice guy what is a stereotype about your culture that's actually true for you i can't not do karaoke if a karaoke machine is close by <laughs> <laughs> i don't have one now but my parents have one there's yeah everyone's yeah. houses they're one a, of my it's a fixture yeah. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite experiences from business school was like, for some reason, both years, all of us decided to go to like a karaoke bar. And that was probably one of the highlights for a lot of people, really. But mm -hmm. I always ended up doing a karaoke song. And I don't think I'm a particularly good singer, but it was, it's always fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Great way to um, break the ice. For sure. That's why we have it at parties. It's just a fun yeah. thing to do. What is the most annoying question non-Asian people have asked you? It's always a variation of, ooh, Lumia. Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> I'm not going to make it for you. Is that what you, if that's what you're asking? I'd like, like you to do that. But sure, lumpia. Yeah, I know it exists. I've eaten my whole life. So what is the point of them mentioning it to us? Okay, and? <laughs> yeah, I think it means people are trying to show that they do their homework. But I'm like, if you really want to show that you did your homework, is to be like, oh yeah, your Corazon. You named it after Corazon Aquino. I was like, yes. I, <laughs> I noticed that when you had yeah. switched your post and I was like, oh, that's a great name. <laughs> yeah, right. The last question is most annoying stereotype you've had to deal with. That we're all nice. Yeah. yeah. We're not meek. I know. I might've been conditioned to be, but I'm not anymore. So watch out. It's our villain era. <laughs> Before we let you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you and connect with you? Yeah, for sure. I do some occasional writing on faith, culture, work, and some other odd intersections on Medium, which you can find at Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N-L as in Llama, Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S dot medium dot com. And then that spelling is also consistent across my Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love talking about this with y'all and enjoy the podcast, so keep it up. Here are our takeaways from today's episode. Number one, the ideals that the United States promotes of freedom and self-determination are appealing in theory, but in practice, they are not equitably accessible to everybody. Number two, in America, Christianity is strongly associated with being Republican, but actually, many Democrats are devout Christians as well. In most countries, there is no strong association between political parties and specific religious sects, and religious beliefs typically don't influence political policy. Number three, in many conservative Christian households, the pressure to go along with the party's political stances often leaves no room for nuance because any questioning of the GOP is immediately reframed as an attack on Christianity and a weakening of their faith. Number four, it takes a lot of work to disentangle identity, religion, and politics. Asking ourselves if the systems and policies we have in place truly represent the people's interests is uncomfortable. It takes unlearning and relearning to piece together a more objective worldview that is free from religious or political agendas. Number five, if religion is to be a safe space and a supportive community, religious leaders need to help depolarize politics and encourage true separation of church and state. Number six, it's important to hold political leaders accountable and research each candidate's platform before voting instead of simply voting along party lines, especially today where both parties are quite fractured. Number seven, one of the main issues with the pro-life movement is that for them, pro-life seems to stop at childbirth. They do not advocate for these children once they become school children, mothers, or members of marginalized minorities. This has caused many religious conservatives to question their affiliation with the GOP. Number eight, the two-party system has led to two fractured parties by which many Americans do not feel adequately represented due to an increasing disconnect between the party's values and the people's interests. Number nine, capitalism and the free market function as intended. They were designed to enrich some and exploit the rest. Number 10, many BIPOC and AAPI, like Nathan, grew up as conservative Christians and their voices can bring great perspectives to these conversations as we've heard today. And finally, number 11, if you're a Christian conservative, we hope this conversation empowers you to have nuance in your political opinions, like Nathan did. And if you're more on the left, we hope this conversation gave you hope and helped you see that not all Christian conservatives are willing to blindly follow the GOP. And that's it for today. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, we hope you'll share it with them and build on our show to have your own nuanced conversations about the relationships we have with our cultural identities and how they affect us. And with that, we hope you'll tune in next week for another nuanced conversation. 